A couple of years, two years after I graduated from the Citadel, I went to uh, Singapore, right above Indonesia, city-states, and I was there doing youth work and coaching basketball. And for nine of those months, I was mentored by a, a man that was very encouraging to me who had been a missionary in, in Indonesia for about 25 years. And he was just on special assignment, getting ready to go back to that country that he loved so dearly. And we were talking one day, and he said, you know, in, in Indonesia... Uh, we experienced a significant and wonderful revival in the 60s. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and the church that had been almost non-existent just mushroomed and grew, and God blessed. And he said it was a, a wonderful time to be there. He said, and when you are baptized in Indonesia, we'll go to a lake or a swimming pool or somebody, and we'll dip people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Many times, a person coming from a Muslim background will say, my name is Abraham bin Joseph, but I also want to be called, and they'll give you a, a name, usually out of somebody from the Bible. If it's a man, Paul or, or Luke or Peter or David or, uh, you know, Micah. And if, if you're a female, Lydia, Mary, uh, you know, Ruth, Naomi, things like that. And he said, one time I was baptizing this guy that I'd gotten to know. He's a wonderful young man, full of life and energy, a big young man. And I was getting ready to baptize him, and I said, do you have a Christian name that you also want to be known as as a sign of your commitment to the things of the Lord? He said, yes, I want to be known as this, Cinderella. <laughs> and he said, I was standing there in the Baptist baptistry waters, and I said, you know, I, I can't baptize you as Cinderella. He said, no, I want to be called Cinderella. He said, you don't understand. I, I can't baptize you as Cinderella. And he said, I want to be called Cinderella. I said, we're having this argument in front of everybody. And I said, why do you want to be called Cinderella? He said, well, all of my life, I've been my parents' least favorite child. And now that I've come to know Christ, I see that I'm really loved by the Father, and I'm precious in his sight. I baptize you, Cinderella, in the name of the Father. He said, I couldn't argue with his theology. It was critical. And I thought about it. If, if I were going to be called by a biblical name. I think I would choose Bartimaeus. Because in the Bible, and I told you this story, I think, two or three weeks ago, but Bartimaeus is this blind man in Mark chapter 10, blind from birth, we think, and he's a beggar, and he's an outcast, and he's, here's Jesus is coming, so he asks a friend to position him by the road where Jesus very likely will pass, and he starts crying out as he hears the crowds coming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him said, you know, be quiet. He's an important man. You're blind, probably a statement of God's disapproval of your life. You're a beggar. You are on the lower rung of society. Don't bother the great teacher. And so he stopped. And then the Bible says he cried out all the more loudly. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops and looks at him and says, what do you want me to do? He says, I don't receive my sight. He says, your sight is restored. Bartimaeus is now not blind Bartimaeus, but Bartimaeus who can see. And as I think about that story, I think that's a picture of repentance. Repentance is crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Repentance is saying, I want to get rid of anything in my life that hinders me from seeing clearly the grace and the goodness and the glory and the delight and the happiness found, that's found in Christ. Anything that keeps me from crying out with all of my heart, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
And so, so repentance. There's a book that I like very much called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in the book, he says this. He says that the biblical concept of the Hebrew word shalom is the webbing together of God and humans and all creation and justice, fulfillment, and delight. We call it peace, but it's much more than peace. It's the webbing together of our lives in justice, fulfillment, and delight. And so repentance is saying, I, I don't want anything in my life that's going to hinder my clear view and my joy and my laughter in the reality and the presence of God. Sin destroys God's shalom in my life. Unconfessed, unforsaken, unabandoned sin destroys. In, in August of 1990, there was a thug named Saddam Hussein who had been longing to gobble up Kuwait and have the revenue of Kuwait in his coffers. And so he invaded Kuwait and he seized their assets and he killed the intelligent people and the educated and the rulers of Kuwait. And the international community stood up and said, this cannot be. And they gave Saddam Hussein several deadlines to get out of Kuwait. He ignored them, thumbed his nose at them. And finally, an international coalition led by the United States went into Kuwait and they took care of business. And Saddam Hussein had to flee with all of his army on the last week of February in 1991. But as he was leaving, he destroyed the oil wells and he poisoned the beaches. He destroyed the oil wells so the oil can be harvested for months, and he poisoned the beaches to make a statement about any type of tourism, and he left. And I thought, that is what sin does. It's a picture of sin. It, 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 it destroys our lives, and it poisons our lives, and we don't want anything to do with that. When we talk about a paradigm for understanding theology, there is this paradigm called a creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So creation... God made man and woman in his image, uh, but man fell into sin. We've all inherited the sin nature. That's why in the fullness of time, the eternal plan of the ages was brought to fruition when Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins, rose victorious over death, ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And anyone who calls out to Christ and says, God, I am a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't do it on my own. I turn from my sin, and I run to you can enter into fellowship with God. And so we glory in that. But often we forget to talk about restoration. Restoration is the fact that Christ, by his Holy Spirit, shapes our lives, empowers us, infuses his energy in us in such a way that we are restored in part to the glory that God has for us in a fallen world. And repentance is all about restoration. It is getting back on track and embracing the liberating joy of the gospel. Re repentance I said last week with the Westminster Confession of Faith, when you repent, you see the stench and the odiousness and the filth of sin and the joy and the hope and the delight that's offered in Christ simultaneously. And you, as you see that, you grieve for and you hate your sin in such a fashion that you turn from it and you run to Abba Father. So you see the odious nature, the filth of sin, and the wonder of Christ, and you grieve for the sin, and you turn from it, and you run to Abba Father. Repentance is repeatedly tapping into the joy that is mine 
And my union with Christ is getting rid of anything that keeps me from crying out, thy kingdom come. So last week we gave you this definition that pervasive, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. It's the best sign that we're doing that. We're growing in the Christ likeness. Last week, we covered a guy named Josiah who became king at the age of eight. And when he was 18, they discovered as he was refurbishing the temple, a scroll wrapped in leather parchment. And they brought the, the scroll out and they started reading it. And it was the law of Moses. It was the word of God. It had been buried for, de- for decades. And as they read the law of God and talked about God's love for his people, but the punishment that comes when we disobey him, this king who was 26 at the time tore his clothes and fell to the ground in humility. I said, the gaze of God is attracted by brokenness and humility. And as he read the reality of judgment that should come, he says, we deserve judgment. And as he saw that, he took measures to restore the people to purity of worship. And so the story of Josiah ends with the people of God observing the Day of Atonement for the first time in decades. And the Bible says it was the most glorious celebration of any time since the Day of the Judgment, surpassing David and Solomon's observance. So Josiah gave them the Word of God, he took measures, and he gave them the worship of God. And my point last week was that when the Word of God is buried under layers of tradition or layers of non-observance, we slide. And all types of bizarre and immoral practices were being taking place in Judah at that time. We need the Scripture. And as we read the Bible and study it, it produces humility, which causes us to take measures, which leads to true worship. And so this morning I want to look at another character study. It's the life of a man named Uzziah, who preceded Josiah as the king. And Uzziah became king at the age of 16, and he was king for 52 years. And I'm going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And the theme this morning is how to foster or cherish repentance and how repentance can be abandoned. Listen to the scripture. This is 2 Chronicles 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah who was 16 years old and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. And Uzziah, verse 3, was 16 years old when he began his reign, and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. Verse 4, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set his heart and his uh, to Seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord God, Jehovah, God made him prosper. Just two points about this and talk about the abandonment of repentance. So how do we foster or cherish repentance? Two points here. Number one, Uzziah had Zechariah. Zechariah was the priest, and Zechariah instructed him in the fear of the Lord. 
so, so I say to myself, self, if, if I am to grow in my repentance, if I'm to stay close to the things of the Lord, if I'm to be the man God has called me to be, I've got to have Zacharias in my life who instruct me in the fear of the Lord or the, the weighty matters of God. Now, when we get together and we eat wings and watch ESPN, that's wonderful, but that's not the fellowship that we really need. That's part of it. And I, listen, college football is, is three weeks and a few days away, and I am thrilled. So don't misunderstand me. I think it's great. But, but, but I, I need people in my life who, who instruct me in the meat of the Scripture and help me think biblically. I need people in my life who say to me, remember, we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus, 2 Peter 3.18. I need people in my life who say, remember, without faith it's impossible to please God. And everyone who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Hebrews eleven six 6, with his presence and his power and his smile. So seek God. I need people to say to me, remember and know that, that we are to live in such a way that, that, that people can see our growth in godliness and our practice and application of godliness. And that if we live that way, we'll save both ourselves and our hearers. Remember that calling. I need people in my life who, who say to me, remember 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 that says this. For this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame, Timothy, the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. In other words, remember that you all as believers, we've all received gifts, but we have to live and structure our lives and see God in such a fashion that we fan it into a flame. We're responsible to be people who pursue God. Remember these things. Remember to walk before the Lord is an ominous, glorious, joyful calling. We're not autonomous nothings. We answer to God. In Nehemiah chapter 1, it says, they delighted in the fear of God. They delighted in the fear of God. Now, why? Why do you delight in the fear of God? Because you realize that there is a great and loving and glorious God who watches over you. You realize that you're not a nothingness on a planet of nothingness going nowhere. That you live before Abba Father. And so you delight in the fear of God. And I thought, you know, if you, if you teach people the fear of the Lord, what, what do you teach them? I thought of Psalm 32 that I mentioned last week where he's, the psalmist says, When I was in sin, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped. And then he says this later. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And what, what, a, what, what a glorious statement. God, has, I want to walk in such a way that I can say that you are a hiding place for me. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Then he says this. Many are, are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let me, let me tell you something. You just observe life and you read and you can say with, with, with total, total honesty, many are the sorrows of the wicked. They're just, they're just layered on top of each other. Brokenness and broken relationships and anger and frustration. But... The steadfast love of the Lord surrounds the one who trusts in the living God, Jehovah. So, so 
Zechariah probably said, now Uzziah, you are the king, but you serve in the pleasure of the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, Uzziah, you're, you're the king, but you serve at the pleasure of the one who is the Lord of the universe. And so you reverence God, and you walk before him with, with sobriety and delight, and you realize that you're surrounded by songs of deliverance because of God. And, and then you think of the statement made by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 and 13, where Moses says this, he says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your own good. This is for your good. It's for your well-being. He says, the Lord God is your treasure. So, so you walk very diligently. This is a man named Louis XIV. Louis XIV was king of France for 72 years. He became king in age six. So the first 10 years, he was just kind of a, the child king. But Louis XIV... Uh, Bankrupted France, he built the Palace of Versailles. Um, he called himself later in his reign, I am the Sun King. No longer Louis XIV, I'm just the Sun King. He had a famous statement where he said, I am the state. I'm the one. And Louis XIV, this, this is all true stories, unbelievable. Louis XIV, they, they would sell people rights to be there when he woke up in the morning. Because when he woke up in the morning, looked up, he may give you, you know, a castle somewhere, may give you a, a royal position or something like that. And so he had people, these sycophants standing there when he woke up and said, oh, great king, you nailed that dismount. I mean, you got up, you did it, king. And, and, and they would be there when he did other things you do when you get up in the morning. It's amazing. And then they would have different groups would stand there while he ate. And they said, King, oh, man, the way you ate that cheese and bread, that was really cool, great king. And, and then they'd be there when he went to bed. I mean, he had all these people, these sycophants around him, but he had no one in his life saying, listen, listen, you may be the king, but you are answerable to the king of kings and lord of lords. You're not the son king. The state doesn't reside in you. You're just a man. Uzziah prospered because he had a Zechariah. Who's your Zechariah? Who are the Zechariahs that teach and encourage you in a local church? Who are the Zechariahs in your life that say, I'm, I'm glad you're gifted. I'm glad you are who you are. But remember, you answer to the King of kings and Lord of lords. The second thing, the second reason he prospers, it says, there, there's just a little statement here. It says this, it says that as, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. 
See, there's, there's a prosperity and happiness and joy and sometimes in vocational fulfillment that comes from when you seek the Lord. You have right relationships. You're able to walk in thankfulness. You're, you're not filled with bitterness and anger. You say, there's a living God. He watches over me. He's number the hairs upon my head. I can trust him. So when you seek God, he brings his goodness and his energy and his hope into your life. And many times he just prospers the way you work because you're people of integrity and God honors that. This is, this is what happened to Uzziah. It's pretty, he, he really prospered. Uzziah went out and he made war against the Philistines, verse 6, and he conquered them. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Meunites. And the Amorites paid tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt. He became very famous. He built towers. He was an architect builder. He built towers in Jerusalem, and he built towers in the wilderness for the people to see the enemy, and he built cisterns, big wells, where people could water their, 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 their goats and their sheep and their oxen or whatever. He, he built these, and, and it says this. I love this. He, he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. I love that statement. See, if, if you're a believer in the living God who made the heavens and the earth, you love the earth. You love creation. You love animals because God made them. They're not mistakes. They're here. And so you nourish and you cherish these things. I love that verse. He, he built up towers in the wilderness. Again, he, 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 was, he, he became powerful in battle. He had an army of 307,500 men. He was powerful in the land. He built war machines that defended and his cities and attacked his enemies. In Jerusalem, he made engines invented by a skillful man to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and gray stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. It's a great verse. He was marvelously helped by whom? By God. Until he became strong. So I look at this and I go, you know, another way to walk in repentance is to understand that God prospers us as we seek him. I don't want anything in my life that's going to take away from the blessing that God wants to give through my well-being, my, my, my thinking, my energy, my, my passion to pursue him, my relationship with people. And so I, I back up and I, gave, I say to us, you know, probably none of us will have an army of 307,500 men. But in your sphere of influence, whether you're in the marketplace or in the home or in education or, 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 or a student, that, that you want the hand of God's blessing to be upon your life, to give you focus, to give you energy, to give you a sense of what is right and wrong, to give you a statement of integrity to all types of people, to live with a life that gives a legacy to those who come behind us. And, and so just, just hear me, this, this, this year, the church year starts today, this week, the first Sunday of the new church year. So several months ago, staff got together and we talked about all the points on the compass and there are scores of them in being a disciple or a follower of Jesus. And then we said, what do you think the Holy Spirit is saying to us? And, and so we prayed and we thought and we, and we came up with, we, we, got, we have to be brief. So four points, four points, run that by the elders, they've signed on. Four points we want to stress this year in being a disciple of Christ in such a fashion that God could prosper us as a people in the kingdom. And I've, I've adopted 
the acrostic mace. I remember well through acrostics. Mace. Now, now mace in the old days was a, 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 rod, a rod of iron with a heavy end that you beat your enemy with. In our day and age, mace is usually something you spray a, an assailant with. So any, any way you do it, we want to mace the devil. Okay? We want to extend the kingdom. Mace the devil. And so the, the, the issues that I'm going to suggest are, are these. We need to be people of mercy and justice. We need to be people who have authentic community. We need to be culturally aware and speak into those issues with grace and dignity. And we need to be people who want to share the gospel with our neighbors and our coworkers and our fellow students and our friends in our city and the ends of the earth. So just those four points. Let me talk about them briefly. So first of all, mercy. God has called us to be merciful people, especially to those who are at points of, of, of true need. One of the most startling statements in the Bible is in the book of Matthew, where Christ on the day of judgment is separating the believers and the non-believers, and the believers show their faith by the way they live. And Christ says, please inherit the kingdom of God, for I was sick and you had compassion upon me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was without clothes and you gave me clothing. I, I was hungry and you gave me food. And, and the people are, are standing there said with great incredulity and said, Lord, when did we see you without clothes? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you in prison? And Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. Thus making some type of existential link between people in need and the reality of Jesus. And I, I back up from that and, and I say that we're to be people of mercy to those around us. And, and so I'm saying that if you're a part of this church, you're part of our community, you're a member here, that, that we want all of us in one way or another to be involved in, in a, a ministry that is merciful to those around us, that extends hope to those around us. And, and there are scores of ministries like that going on right now. You may do your own. We, we, have, we have people that go to prison every week to take the gospel to Minute Lieber Correctional Institute. And we have an army of people that are in a correspondence with scores and scores and scores of prisoners around the country. A Bible correspondence course, they write, they grade papers, they send letters of encouragement. We, we have, for example... Uh, a friends class here, a special class for, for, for little children who have special needs. That gladdens the heart of God. We have people here that are involved in, in foster families and adoption, which is an incredible commitment, but it gladdens the heart of God. And some of us need to come around the foster families and give them a night out, give them a weekend off. There are others who have a ministry to, to men who are homeless and they feed them Every week. They take them food every week and spend the evening with them. There are all types of special classes for people who, who have needs that, that we, that we and I, that there are home furnishings ministry where we take some good furniture. They inspect your furniture before they take it. They don't take bad stuff. And they take good furniture and they give it to people who don't have furniture in the name of Jesus. And see, these things gladden the heart of God. James 1 says that religion that God our fathers consider as pure and undefiled is to look after widows and orphans in their distress. And so I back up and I say, God, we need to be merciful people. There are many people in the church involved in the 
low country pregnancy center that deals with women trapped in, in, in very difficult pregnancies. And we say, please guard the sanctity of life. Let us help you out. Let us do this. Let us do that. You know, that's what we're called to do. I was asking my wife this week, I said, what, what should be our mercy ministry this year? What do we need to do? What do we need to do to help people in the name of Christ to the glory of his name? That's who we are. A is authentic community. Every person here needs to be an authentic community where there's a give and a take. People say, how are you doing? How is your soul? What are you thinking? What are you reading? How are you loving those around you if you're married? How are you serving your wife? How are you serving your husband? How are you caring for your children? How are you responding to this difficult person at work? You tell me about It's authentic community. It's more than ESPN and Wings. It's fine if it involves that. Don't misunderstand me. We need to have hang time, fun time. But it involves a give and a take in fellowship. I need authentic community. I need Zacharias. You do too. I'm an old guy, and I want to finish strong. And to finish strong, I need authentic community. I need Zacharias in my life. That's why we have community groups, and we have man-to-man, and we have women's studies and men's groups and all types of things because we believe that you need to be in a small group where people are just lovingly speaking to you and praying for you and caring for you. And the Bible's very clear on that. C is being culturally aware and speaking with grace and dignity to our culture. I, we have a lot of young people that are going to be here in the weeks to come. College kicks back in. And, and I, I, I am constantly flabbergasted, bolderized, blown away by what's happening in our culture. And I I say to myself, self, it was only 20 years ago when the overwhelming majority of the House and the Senate passed something called the Defense of Marriage Act that said very succinctly, marriage is between a man and a woman. President Clinton signed it into law. And now if you make that statement in certain circles in society today, they act as if you're a Neanderthal from the Dark Ages that can't read. And I, I think of the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, who this week the NBA said, that's the National Basketball Association, said we will not have our all-star game there next year because the city has passed an ordinance asking people to use the bathroom that is that of their gender identity at birth. I'm going, now that is a radical measure. I mean, come on. But no, I mean, they're not going to do that. It's going to cost Charlotte $100 million. If Charlotte wasn't such a landlocked city, I'd vacation there next year. Now, I'm just going, really? And there's a bill before the California legislative body that would basically... Many people say obliterate Christian education at a high school and college level because there's a certain group of people, and we love them, we pray for them, we want to share the gospel with them, who worship at the altar of sexual anonymity and freedom in almost any and every area except these areas, and that line is being pushed back all the time. And so we need to understand these things and grapple with these things and pray and speak with brokenness and compassion to one another and to those around us. We've got to be 
culturally aware. All too often the church addresses issues that were very significant and germane 30 years ago. So you've got to think, and you got to think, you got to think. And then E is evangelism. We want to take the gospel to our neighborhoods and our, our dorms and our barracks and our friends, and we want to take the gospel and think about how do, we, how do we live in such a way that we communicate Christ to those around us. Now, so that's it. And it takes focus. That's what I just did for. It takes focus. I'm going to take a brief side road just to make a point here. The problem with having a focus is that we live in a, in a culture that does not value being focused. We live in information overload. There's a wonderful man named Neil Postman who's died uh, about eight years ago. He was a professor at NYU for 40 years. Of, he was a cultural critic and a cultural thinker. And he wrote a book, several wonderful books. One is entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, released in 1985, which is a long time ago. And he, in this book, he talks about Something happened in the 19th century that made true information forever irrelevant. And he said that was the invention of the telegraph. That's what he says, telegraph. He says that it forever changed the way we think. And he quotes Henry David Thoreau in a book called Walden. If some of you have already said this, quote, We are in a great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas. But Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate with each other. We are eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and bring the old world closer to the new. But perchance the first news that we will hear once that happens that is leaked into the broad and flapping American ear will be that Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough. And then this, as Thoreau implied, he writes, telegraphy made relevance irrelevant. The abundant flow of information had very little or nothing to do with those to whom it was addressed. That is, with any social or intellectual content in which their lives were embedded. In a sea of information, there was very little of it to use. A man in Maine and a man in Texas could converse, but not about anything either of them knew or cared very much about most of the time. Maybe an overstatement. But, but I, I read that I thought, we live in a sea of information that makes it very difficult to think. And he talked about the information action ratio. And Postman said the more information we have, the more likely, unlikely we are to ever take action on anything. Information action ratio. And just my personal thing, just information overload, endless entertainment. So here's, so I, I don't watch the news. I read a magazine. I read two magazines and I get a newspaper. Wall Street Journal, and I go to four or five websites and just click on and read. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you now, I'm giving up on Fox News website. Let me tell you why. If you go to Fox News, here it is. I wish I could show it to you, but Fox, the first three or four headlines are usually okay. And then they break down to various stories, some of whom are kind of silly and squirrely, some of whom are okay. And then down here at the bottom are these pictures, and they have, they have things that just are stupid. Jessica Simpson has a beach-ready body. I don't care. No, I really don't care. I, I was, this week there was a big to-do about, about um, what's his name? Aaron Rodgers, future Hall of Fame quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, does not speak to his brother who just was selected to be the love relationship of the bachelorette. 
And um, I didn't know anything about the bachelorette, and so I had to ask Craig Harris, and he told me all about it. <laughs> so, so uh, but she, she, she chose him and went to his home, and Aaron Rodgers wasn't there, and Aaron Rodgers and his brother aren't in a they don't speak to each other. And then the next day, maybe the two brothers don't talk about each to each other because uh, there's some issue with Olivia Munn, who Aaron Rodgers is, is I think, dating. And I, I just thought, you know, I don't care. I, I don't care. I, mean, I, I want those people to come to Christ, and Aaron Rodgers professes to be a Christian. I don't know what's going on there, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't care if Jessica has a beach-ready body. I don't care that Miley, is it Miley or Millie? Miley, thank you. Miley Cyrus did something crazy this week. What else is new? You know, the sun rose in the east today. I mean, I mean, I, I, listen, I don't care. But what happens, you pump this stuff. In, you don't have so much brain matter to handle stuff. And you pump that stuff time after time. You can't think. And some of you are going to be sitting, you're sitting there and say, man, that verse in 2 Timothy 1 about stirring yourself up. Man, that's powerful. That means I've got to be about the business of pursuing the Lord. And you're thinking that, and you're going to get in your car, and you're going to hear about this and that and this and 30 minutes from there. Boom, it's gone. And I'm going to say, if we're to be people, we've got to fight hard to think. Because we're inundated with stuff all the time. Most of which is very unimportant. I told you this eight years ago. Some of you remember. I'm, I'm not watching anything about the presidential election. I'll read about it, but I'm not going to be caught up in the cycles and the polls and who's up and who's down and who's made. Another dumb statement this week and all so forth and so on. There, there are some things that are really, really important. And other things just to start. So the, the second way, how do you, how do you, how do you abandon or neglect the life of repentance. Very quick, very easy. It's in the text. This is what happened. In the context of things, Zechariah dies. Uzziah grows old as a king. Verse 16, a profound verse. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. See that? Strong, proud destruction. Happens all the time. Strong, proud destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. God had ordained that only the priest offer sacrifices, not the king. That's God's command. It says he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. Now stop. There are some priests who, in the Bible who were regrettable people. They were involved in all types of nefarious conduct. Not these guys. 81 men of courage. 81 men of biblical integrity. 81 men who are studs. They go in the temple. And they withstood the king. You may be king, but you answer to the king of kings and lord of lords. You've heard that from Zechariah, Uzziah, but you've forgotten that. They withstood king Uzziah, and they said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests and the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense. 
as God has said. So go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah, you deal with God. You've done wrong. Then King Uzziah was angry. Previously, with Zechariah, King Uzziah repented. He listened. Now the king had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Leprosy is a dreaded disease, made you a social pariah, made you an outcast. It was a sign of God's disfavor. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. You couldn't touch a leper. You shouldn't be in his presence. This great king spent the last years of his life with leprosy, secluded in a house because he abandoned the life of God. So I, I read that. He, he, when he grew strong, he became proud to his own destruction. And, and so, by way of application, let me ask you a few questions. Do you daily remind yourself that God has called us to human flourishing, shalom, and that sin destroys. Sin is a cancer. Sin is a blight. Every day. Second, do I take measures to forsake that which dishonors God? And we all deal with this till we die. And, and the stakes are very high. I, I was been reading through the book of Micah, thinking through it just this month of August is, the month, is Micah, Old Testament book. It's about God calling out the people of Israel, repent, repent, repent. They did not, they did not, they did not. And then God says, you're going to be conquered by the Babylonians and you're going to be exiled. And it says this in verse 16. I just, said to my, I just circled this and I said, the stakes are high. And God says to the people of Israel, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Shaving your head was a sign of extreme distress. And God says, shave your heads for the children of your delight, because they are going to inherit the reality of the way you've lived. And I, I say to myself, so I have children I delight in. I have a grandchild I delight in. And I say, God, please, please, please let me live in such a fashion that, that, that there is a sense of integrity and wholeness that I can pass on to them. And then I'm reading the Confessions of Augustine. Augustine, part of reading the Confessions of Augustine, died in 430, it's a great book. He just, or his prayers, he just breaks out in a prayer. And he says this, he says, Oh Lord, grant this, that as, as we have entered into the labors of others, 
May we so labor that others may enter into our labors to the fulfillment of your holy will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. He says, he says Lord, we, we are entering into laboring for the gospel because of those who have gone before us. May we labor in such a fashion that those who come behind us may enter into our labors through our faithfulness. I just said, the stakes are high. Therefore, do I take measures to get rid of anything that keeps me from crying out, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Bitterness, unresolved anger. Number three, Am I growing in my self-awareness and my familiar awareness? There's a lot I want to say about this. But every one of us come from, to one degree or another, families that have been impacted by sin, even those who come from godly, wonderful homes. There are familial issues that we have observed. And if we don't come to the Lord, and if we're not observant and aware, we can replicate them. In the worst cases, I know families that are just full of anger. That just everybody's angry. Everybody's just ticked off all the time. I know families, and you do too, where substance abuse rules. I've seen young women who grew up in homes with an alcoholic father who physically abused them marry a drunk. And I've tried to intervene. They said, No, I love this guy. I'm going, What is you repeat? unless you're aware, and you let Jesus break in and destroy it. Adultery marks certain family units. Bitter rage. I mean, it goes on. So, so am I growing in my awareness? Who is your Zechariah? Are you so involved in the church that you hear people speak truth? Who is your Zechariah? Who speaks truth into you. And do you, do you understand the information action ratio that you can be so inundated with information that it becomes useless and it makes your life barren? Are you fighting to think biblically? Are you fighting to be a repenting person because you want to tap into the joy and the glory of Christ? May God give us grace to live that way.